Welcome to the Daily Standard Podcast. It's September 6, 2018, um, especially crazy day in crazy town. I'm Charlie Sykes, joined by the editor-in-chief of the Weekly Standard, Stephen Hayes, and Andrew Eggers of the Weekly Standard. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate it very much. Hey, Charlie. Um, I'm sorry, Egger. I said Eggers. Um, okay, let's just start off. Uh, Steve, uh, welcome back in the country. I'm glad. I'm glad they let you back in again. <laughs> I'm off the terrorist watch list. Okay, that that's good because you know that was <laughs> that was an extraordinary moment in your life, wasn't it? When you found out that, that somebody had put you on the terrorist watch list. It was a very long few weeks, and it made my my. I had to show up at the airport two or three hours early every time just to get on the plane, but it didn't last for very long, which was good. Did Did you ever figure out how you got on it? I did. Yeah, actually, what what happened was I was doing a Hillsdale College. Cruise and my wife and I flew into Istanbul, Turkey, took the cruise, and then flew out of, I believe it was Athens. And anybody of a certain age who was a male at that time who took a one way flight into Istanbul was flagged because it was the main transit point for people going to fight uh, with ISIS heading into Syria. So they flagged me and they, they kept me on the list. And the story, did I ever, have I ever told you the story about how I got off the list? It's one of my favorite stories of all time. I was on this list forever. I called the DHS to find out how I got on the list and how I could get off. And they told me to call the FBI. So I called the FBI and asked them how I could get off. And they told me to call DHS. And this went back and forth. And I called D- DOJ and I called everybody. And I was going to do a piece about this at some point. And I also thought it might be useful to help me get off of the uh, the list. But as it happened, uh, one day Brett Baer was uh, interviewing – uh, DHS Secretary Jay Johnson on a uh, special report, and I knew about it in advance, and Brett and I sometimes work on some questions. I offered some questions to him, and I said, as a sort of as a joke, hey, at the end of this thing, why don't you ask him what the heck I'm doing on the watch list? Like, <laughs> ask him about this. And Brett's such a pro at, at this and has a tremendous sense of humor. And he gets to the end of the interview, and I don't—I won't get the the quotes exactly right, but says to to Jay Johnson, "Mr. Secretary, I've got a very serious question to ask you. You may know that I have uh, a panelist uh, named Steve Hayes who joins us regularly here on Special Report, and he is on the terror watch list. Mr. Secretary, do I have a terrorist on my panel, <laughs> or something like this?" And I figured Johnson would laugh. I'm in the green room. It's like a green room full of people, and we're watching this, and we're doubled over laughing. I mean, people have tears coming out of their eyes. They've spit out their, their Diet Cokes. And Jay Johnson, I expect, is going to laugh and say, oh, Brett, there must be some problem. And instead, he fixes his face, very serious and grave look, looks right back at Brett and says, Brett, I can't speak to this individual's particular circumstances <laughs> or something like that, like leaving open the possibility that well, I really might be a terrorist and I'm, Brett might have a terrorist on his panel. But well, the good news is I was off, off the, yeah, the watch list a couple days later. Don't put back on it under the current administration. <laughs> uh, it was funny. Speaking of the current administration, I'm looking at a tweet that went out uh, moments ago from Sarah Sanders. For those of you asking for the identity of the anonymous coward, of course, we're now referring to the op-ed piece in the New York Times that has devoured the universe. Um, She writes, "Uh, the media's wild obsession with the identity of the anonymous coward is recklessly tarnishing the reputation of thousands of great Americans who proudly serve our country and work for President Trump. Stop. 
period. If you want to know who this gutless loser is, call the opinion desk of the failing New York Times at, and there's a phone number, and ask them. They are the only ones complicit in this deceitful act. We stand united together and fully support our president, Donald J. Trump. So um, this is a hell of a mess we're in right now. Let's talk about uh, this, this, Steve. The paranoid and dysfunctional White House apparently is even more paranoid, and maybe with, with good reason, as they as apparently they're going to be, you know, tearing off all the ward, uh, you know, the boards off the walls, uh, dismantling all the desks, looking at in the in the search for the mole. So, just give me your thoughts about the significance of this anonymous op-ed piece that the New York Times ran, saying that it is written by a senior official in the Trump administration. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, it is. It's crazy. It's typical of the kind of feeding frenzy that is is now basically a daily occurrence in in the Trump. White House and with the with Trump Washington, where one thing or another sends people sort of flitting in a group from one thing to the next, and there's speculation and what have you. Uh, that's not the I think the the lasting impact of of this op ed. I think the the bigger story beyond this first thing. And by the way, if, if people have not yet taken the time to come read Charlie's. Um, piece about this that we just posted at theweeklystandard.com. I highly recommend you do so. The the longer term <clears throat> impact of this, to the extent that there is any, I mean, setting aside the motives and who this person might be and what have you, is that it does echo the kinds of things that those of us who talk to people at the White House uh, and in the administration have been hearing for 18 months. I mean, for, since you know, it's the beginning of the administration. And I think it's consistent with the, the reporting that we're seeing emerge from the leaks and the reviews of the Bob Woodward book. I expect that we'll see many, many more of those. It's a 450-page book, I think, that's filled with these kinds of stories. So in that sense, what I think makes it a little bit more difficult uh, to, to do for Trump defenders and Trump supporters is to dismiss it. Um, you know, this is somebody who, wh- whatever you think of his motives for doing this and for the act of, of writing this, chose to serve in the Trump administration by the New York Times accounts at a relatively senior level and ha- has made this argument and laid out um, his assessment of how the White House is functioning or not functioning. It can't be sort of dismissed. I mean, this isn't, you know, the left. This isn't Rachel Maddow and MSNBC or the president's big critics on on CNN. I mean, this is somebody who chose to work in the White House who's making these arguments that the president is unstable and erratic and needs to be protected from himself and is from himself and is detrimental to the health of the republic. It's just a little bit harder I think for people to dismiss that out of hand even if they don't like the act of writing the piece. Well that was one of my first questions about it. I I had several number 1, you know, despite the the the, the intense furor around it what exactly does it tell us that we did not know? What is new? Uh, Bob Corker essentially says, uh, yeah, this is what we've known all along. I hear this all the time. Ben Sass said the same thing. It appears to echo uh, the reporting that we have read um, ad infinitum out of the White House. So does it really add anything to our understanding of all of that? Now, if in fact we knew who it was, you know, if you had a senior member of this administration step forward and say, this is my experience, you know, and this is what I think about it, it might have some impact, maybe a minimal impact. The other question I had about it is, what was the effect of it? What is what exactly is the point, considering that, that it is still an anonymous piece? Was it to reassure us that, you know, we've, we've got this handled, which is somewhat questionable, because the effect 
uh, is likely not to be positive, right? I mean, if your whole point is to have this covert right. operation to frustrate and manipulate the president, um, does it work when you've just announced it to the entire world? Right. Yeah, I mean, you almost wonder, if you think about it for a few minutes, you almost wonder if the, if the goal actually wasn't to announce that this is happening, but to drive the president further crazy. I mean, it because it, 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 it's inevitable that it will have that effect. And we've already seen the beginning stages of this. I, th- I guess I think that the, the longer impact isn't that it tells us something new. Um, but it comes from a different kind of source. Now, the the hardest of hardcore Trump supporters, I think, are, are likely to say, "Ah, this is a turncoat. This is probably an establishment person who you know is in in close with the failing New York Times. We don't need to to listen to this person at all. What have you?" Um, but I do think that as as part of a cumulative story that's being told, this does make it a little bit different. It's somebody from inside the administration. If it is in fact a senior administration official, this is not somebody. You know, they can't they can't point to this being somebody who's a hardcore, unreasonable, uh, never ending critic of the Trump administration. So I think it it, it bolsters the the broader story, the broader narrative that we've been seeing come out about the White House. Now I have I'm under no illusions that this will change the, the minds of the hardest of hardcore Trump supporters and defenders. Byron York um, today has a, a piece out saying, here's what the piece means, seven points about this New York Times op-ed piece. Mm-hmm. And, and one of those, one of the things he says is that the complaints of the piece are small. I mean, you have to stop <laughs> really? and think about that wow. for a second. The author of the piece took this <laughs> unprecedented step because, and, and argues in the piece, that Donald Trump is an unstable, erratic, amoral figure who continues to act in the manner that is detrimental to the health of the republic. Those are not small complaints. So Trump defenders are going to find a way to defend this or dismiss this or downplay it because it's what they do. But I think for the rest of the, the country, this will add sort of add to the to the case that we're already hearing. It is interesting. I was looking. I was uh, on on Twitter. I think it was uh, Joe Walsh, who was uh, a conservative talk show host, former congressman, who's made kind of an anti-Trump pivot. He, he apparently devoted an hour to discussing this on his show, and I think he said something like ninety-three percent of his callers just simply didn't believe that it was real. They thought that the New York Times had fabricated it, which again is is a sign of our times. The other thing that I'm noticing is that uh, some of the savvier uh, Trump uh, rationalizers are weaponizing this by saying, see, there is a deep state. Uh, You know, they're actually this is what we've been telling you, that there is a deep state that's conspiring to undermine the democratically elected president of the United States. uh, And this simply confirms that. And that certainly is going to that seems to be the way that uh, that Trump is going to run with this as well. Yeah, look, I mean, I think that's probably the best argument that they have available to them. The, the, the author of this piece in the piece says this isn't the deep state. This is the steady state. We're trying to keep this. This isn't some no. big conspiracy to undermine the president because of what the president believes. It's that the president is reckless and erratic and all these things. And we just need to keep things – we need to keep things going. So it's a very different kind of argument. I mean, look, Charlie, you and I have, have had this discussion before. I'm not totally unsympathetic to the broader mm-hmm. deep state arguments. I mean, there, we've seen some of this stuff. We've – I am a fierce critic of John Brennan. I think John Brennan used the CIA, manipulated the CIA for political reasons throughout his tenure as CIA director under President Obama. We saw James Clapper um, repeatedly, I think, change intelligence and and manipulate intelligence to support the president's policy preference. The the idea that that the intelligence community or the deep state or the permanent state 
is somehow apolitical, I think is is false. But it doesn't mean that there is this, you know, widespread conspiracy uh, to undermine the president from the beginning, from before the time when anybody thought the president was likely to be elected. I mean, the the deep state's conspiracy theories have sort of gone crazy. But it's not to say that there's not a, a kernel of truth in some of the arguments that people have made about that. The uh, the 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 other question, of course, is that the the game that everybody's playing now, and um, I was going to say in Washington D.C., it's actually pretty much national about the identity of the writer. Uh, the question of what does the term senior official in the administration mean? It doesn't say senior official in the White House. And there have been, you know, some folks who've been saying, you know, given the definition of senior, it could be somebody that we've never really heard of. We're talking about uh, what, 120, hundreds, you know. What, what, what is the definition of a senior official? Yeah, I mean, there is no it, it, standard you know, definition. It, it, it's not necessarily John Kelly. It's not necessarily Larry Kudlow or somebody like that. It, it could be somebody relatively obscure, at least from people on the outside. I think that's right. I mean, senior administration officials are it's, – it's a widely overused um, term. And I think for many journalists, it means whoever it is that I'm talking to at this particular moment, you know, the, the more – if you don't report, most people don't report that they've spoken to a junior administration official who has insight <laughs> on X, Y, and Z because people don't really care. So, you know, mid-level administration officials are often inflated to be senior. I think it's deceptive to do that, obviously. It ought not happen. Um, but I think, you know, if I were guessing about this and everybody else seems to be, I would guess that it is a second or sort of third level um, official. You know, maybe somebody on the National Security Council has um, a, a big say over a particular uh, port, national, national security foreign policy portfolio who um, talks to the president, is in some of these meetings, influences the, the direction of the White House or tries to, um, and could, I think, appropriately be called a senior administration official. But senior administration official doesn't know, you know, a cabinet secretary. It doesn't mean a cabinet secretary every time or somebody whose name we know. I think it's in all likelihood somebody who will be familiar to many people in Washington, D.C., certainly reporters. I would imagine that this is the kind of official who spends a fair amount of time talking to reporters mm-hmm. on the background, on, on background. Um, but I'd be surprised if it was, you know, a big name uh, official yeah. that everybody knows. Um, so the president also tweeted out this morning, and I, and I apologize in advance for having a discussion about the president's tweets. But this the tweets, but th- this was a little bit striking. Kim Jong Un of North Korea proclaims, "quote unwavering faith in President Trump." Unquote. Thank you, Chairman Kim. We will get it done together. Exclamation point. Yeah, uh, that's a problem. (laughs) Um, The the, um, look, if you believe what the president said in the aftermath of the Singapore summit, there's nothing more to get done because we have already eliminated the nuclear threat from North Korea. You'll remember that he tweeted that immediately in the aftermath of those meetings. So, uh, you know, he's undermining his own claim at the time. it's a it's a problem that the president speaks like this. It's a problem that the president uses these kind of uh, honorifics to to talk about Kim Jong Un, um, and I think it makes the work of the people whose job it is to actually put in place a verification regime to bring on board our allies for some kind of effort to assess the the North's program and and what it's up to. It makes those um, it makes those things that much more difficult. And obviously, 
Kim Jong Un is is saying this because he knows how President Trump will react. I mean, you could predict exactly the kind of tweet that President Trump sent before he sent it. So, there and there was just as an aside. Um, there was a. I'm trying to find it. I don't think I can find it. There was a uh, an, an, uh, report out that the North Koreans have told the South Koreans that they want to be helpful and that they're now committed to denuclearization again in a way that they in a way that they weren't. But there was a report, a series of reports uh, out last week uh, on on Twitter. Oh, here I did find it. By I'll mess up the name. Stavomir Debski, who is a the head of a uh, think tank in Poland, who spent some time in North Korea talking to North Korean officials. And this uh, person said, basically, this is sort of a hopeless effort. The, the denuclearization stuff is not likely to work because the North Koreans are not committed to denuclearization. Um, the, the, he wrote, on denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, we've truly reached a fork in the road. DPRK insists that it has exhausted all possibilities to build a greater trust in its relations with the U.S. Now it's time for the U.S. to reciprocate. <laughs> I mean, th- th- what we're hearing in public, what Kim Jong-un is serving to the president in public is very different from what North Korean officials are apparently telling uh, people who are sitting down with them and talking about the details of this. Oh, it, go, going back to the op-ed piece, it was a question I was going to ask you that I forgot. But if, let, let's say that, that next week you got a phone call or an email from a senior official in the Trump administration saying, hey, I would also like to write – uh, an anonymous op-ed piece. Would you, as the editor-in-chief of the Weekly Standard, publish it? What would be your process and your thinking about writing, publishing the next piece? Because we don't, there yeah. probably will be more. It's so a good what, question. What? We, we don't we don't like to do that. Uh, we've made a couple of exceptions and published. I would I, I don't quote me on this. Uh, I don't know the exact number, but I would guess that it's probably less than a handful of, of pieces in the history of the magazine, 22 history of the magazine, where we've allowed um, somebody to publish under a, a nom de plume. Um, I, I would yeah. I would have I would have major reservations about doing something like this on, on the one hand. On the other if it were an official with whom I had a pre-existing relationship and whom I found credible, um, and and this is somebody who had been telling me these stories consistently over the course of the administration and had been able to support the claims with detailed um, descriptions of meetings where this had happened and what have you, uh, and wanted to write this because he or she thought that, that this would help advance the debate. I think we'd have to seriously consider it. Um, it wouldn't be something we would do lightly, though. Um, no, and you, you, I would I would think also that you, I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that you would probably want to push them. Hey, you know, you'd have a lot more impact if you put your name on it. No question. No. <laughs> because that's kind of my point about all of this is that because we learned so little, um, you know, we've, we've heard these anonymous, you know, cries for help and signals and, you know, sent up before, um, you know, at, at this point, we know all of this stuff. So, you know, en- enough with the anonymity, which, by the way, is not a criticism of reporters who have to rely on it. But it is for the, you know, the, the folks in the administration. I mean, we, we get it. OK, you know, what is the next step? All right. I want to let me can, let me just can yeah, I just yeah, say sure. one one quick thing sure. about about that? Sure. I mean, it's important to remind people, again, that these are not the, these officials who are giving anonymous quotes or more these anonymous assessments or anonymous criticism of the president, White House team, what have you. They're not anonymous to reporters. 
Now, that might not right. give – if you're skeptical of the New York Times and you think the New York Times is out to, to get Donald Trump, you're not going to necessarily think that, that they're talking to the kinds of people who would offer and you know, an sort of un, unblinkered and, and fair assessment of the president anyway. So you might be dismissive. But, you know, I, I, I've had these kinds of conversations. I've had these kinds of conversations with people who serve in the Trump administration, in the Trump White House, with people who are deeply supportive of the president's issue agenda, and also people who are more skeptical, who, who would be considered conservative movement types or even establishment Republicans, who have made exactly the same kinds of arguments that we see in this op-ed that we're seeing emerge in, in the Bob Woodward book. I think it's important to, to note that you know we know the identities of these people. These are not anonymous. You know, it's not like people are sending right. random emails from a, a, a made-up Hotmail account, and the New York Times is publishing it. I, I don't know who this person is. I might, when we find out, and I think we will, I might have real questions about how the New York Times described him as a senior administration official, or whether they had the kind of relationship that allowed them to, to choose to publish this. In, in an anonymous fashion. But if we were to do this, I mean, I know the identities of the people I've had these conversations with. Um, I've, I find them credible or I don't consider using them. So I think there is, you know, th that should in enhance the credibility broadly of the, the kind of people who are saying this. When, when I've, I've given speeches or I've talked to people who say to me, but how could you publish somebody who's anonymous? And I said, well, the person isn't anonymous to us. It's not anonymous to me. And they're surprised by this. They think, hmm. oh, you actually know who this is? So it's a, it's, it's a, it's a small but I think important uh, point to make. It's actually rather crucial. Uh, I want to uh, pivot to the uh, Kavanaugh hearings, which were rather extraordinary this morning. Um, the the, the circus-like atmosphere seemed to ramp up just when you thought it could not get any more bizarre. And I want to talk about that with uh, with, with Andrew, who was who was there. Who's, I mean, who's been who has been monitoring this very very closely. But before we do that, uh, today's Daily Standard podcast is brought to you by Calm, which again seems an incredibly useful and timely uh, product. Because if you ever feel stressed or anxious, uh, and you're looking for a coping tool, this is it. I mean, have you ever meditated before? And if you haven't, do you think that meditation would benefit you or does that just seem too eccentric? Look, this is why we are partnering with Calm, the number one app for sleep, meditation, and relaxation. It was even named Apple's 2017 app of the year. Calm gives you the tools you need to live a happier, healthier, and more mindful life. I think the sales should be through the roof in Washington, D.C. these days. Just five minutes of calm can change your entire day. So if you head to calm.com slash standard, you will get 25% off a calm premium subscription, which includes hundreds of hours of premium programs, including guided meditations on issues like anxiety, stress, focus, relationships, including a new meditation each day called the Daily Calm. So for a limited time, the Daily Standard listener, you Daily Standard listeners, can get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash standard. And that includes unlimited access to all of Calm's amazing content. Get started today at calm.com slash standard. That's calm.com slash standard. Stephen, I think you could use this, really. I definitely. I, could I just use think it. this is this is this is really good for. You, you probably should pop for the whole staff. It'll, it'll, it'll help me help me sleep through the night. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I've I've used things like that before, and I will uh, certainly be downloading the Calm app and putting it on my phone. <laughs> okay. I mean, honestly, 
I had downloaded this the week before we partnered with them. <laughs> you know, I heard about, and I said, "That's something that I need. I mean, anything to get through this. Who knows how long it's going to last?" <laughs> okay, so Andrew, uh, speaking of Crazy Town, I mean, oh my God, uh, the, the the Kavanaugh hearing, you know, started off with uh, demonstrations and disruptions, and uh, you know, they're usually kabuki dances, but the, kabuki dances, but these things have really turned into street theater. Um, and, and I want to just talk about this morning's rather bizarre turn of events where Senator Cory Booker announced that he was going to violate Senate rules by releasing certain confidential emails and documents, um, even at the risk of being expelled from the Senate. Chuck Grassley read him or who was it who read him the, the, the rule about, you know, if you do this, you can get expelled. And Cory Booker says, bring it on. Uh, so just give me some sense of 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 what is going on and 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 whether this is actually leading anywhere or whether or not this is just theatrics for the base. Yeah, well, I mean, you you use the word circus, and I I one thing that Senator Lindsey Graham actually said later in the hearing that I thought was 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 pretty fun was that he he sort of spoke up in defense of circuses. He says circuses are kind of fun, and you can bring your kids, and uh, that's that that's really you know circuses have a lot to recommend them over this you know deeply stupid sequence of of hearings. Um, but yes, so so the the thing this morning was uh, was Booker and a number of other Democrats decided um, since yesterday's hearings that they're not going to wait around for Chuck Grassley, the the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, to actually release uh, the the documents that they've requested. Um, from being committee confidential, they're just going to leak them all to the press. Um, and and it was John Cornyn, who uh, uh, senator, uh, senator from uh, Texas, senior member of uh, of Republican leadership, who was uh, scolding uh, Cory Booker of, of New Jersey, who's sort of the, the ringleader of this thing, saying, "Look, this is a complete um, sort of ludicrous violation of Senate rules. This is exactly the same as an executive branch official just deciding unilaterally uh, that the the classifications, um, you know." Know, that that have been uh, applied to specific documents don't apply. Um, and, and yeah, Cory Booker essentially said, well, you know what, if you want to bring up charges against me uh, to, to expel me from the Senate, you know, go right ahead, be my guest, bring it on. Um, and yeah, it was it was. And then all the other Democrats optics. did their sort of, they were all, you know, I am Spartacus too thing yes. where, you know, I, I want in on this. If you expel him, expel me too and all yes. of this. That's, and, ex that's exactly what happened. Pure optics, it's not, not going to happen. I mean, it's it's a distraction from, which again, as, as Graham pointed out, you know, the, this is very little. None of this has hardly anything to do with whether or not Kavanaugh is going to get appointed uh, or uh, confirmed, rather, which is you know looking more and more like a sure thing. As and Democrats seem to be tacitly acknowledging that as well, given sort of the this sort of extremely dramatic political theater uh, that that they're putting on during yeah, these. But they, during they these did hearings. they did release the they did release the emails, and I, I certainly don't claim that I've read through them all, but. I don't see anything there that is anything like a smoking gun or or even mildly embarrassing to Kavanaugh, which makes the whole theater even more seem a little bit more bizarre. Well, and, th and this was the whole rationale uh, behind the Trump and the Trump administration picking Kavanaugh in the first place, right? Is that, you know, that he wasn't the guy that got um, the, the the base quite as jazzed up as, as some of the others who were floated. Um, but, but he was just considered to be such a straight laced sort of, uh, 
really just competent and capable and really highly recommended jurist that that when Democrats tried to go to this playbook, it would it would look a little silly. And that's that's pretty much what we've seen happening to, to, to the point where, you know, it, it doesn't even look like Democrats are so much jockeying around in order to get leverage in the in the 2018 elections anymore, at least with with some of these things like what we saw with with Booker. Um, a lot of this, a lot of what a lot of people have have pointed out, and I, I think it's it's true is what we're what we're seeing is Booker trying to trying to position himself strongly for the 2020 Democratic presidential primaries. Same with uh, Kamala Harris. Um, you know, you could make the argument that uh, a couple of the others have been have been doing the same sort of thing. Um, but it's just, I mean, it's the question is just who are these people talking to? Who are who are they trying to make this case to? Um, it, it really doesn't seem like these kinds of intensely procedural. Um, uh, you, you know, battles like, you know, Cory Booker, Booker bravely standing up to the Senate Judiciary Committee by leaking some documents to the New York Times. Like, that's not the kind of thing that's going to, like, move the needle nationally uh, in, in terms of, like, voter turnout or anything this year. But it is the kind of thing that perhaps sticks in the minds of, you know, Democratic Party activists and and the kind of people who need to get jazzed who, who, up. Who, who have been railing, yeah, who've been railing on the Democrats because they think they haven't fought hard enough. So, you know, it seems like part of the agenda here is not necessarily to defeat Kavanaugh, but to look like they did every Thing they could to defeat Kavanaugh. Right, right. And again, I mean, I keep I keep mentioning Lindsey Graham. And part, part of the reason is because he was the last one to talk before lunch. And my brain is totally fried by all the people I've heard talking for the last few days. But that's that's a point Graham made is like, look, this is in, in certain really crucial respects. Uh, this is a foregone conclusion. You know, you guys probably just don't have the votes to block this guy from getting confirmed. And he's an extremely competent jurist. So there's, you know, y- you you ought to be able to say, Graham says to his Democratic uh, counterparts, you, you you should be able to say like, look, we're not going to vote for this guy. We don't support him because we don't agree with his judicial philosophy, which is clearly the the issue, right? I mean, he's he's a he's an originalist jurist, which is obviously going to put him at odds with uh, progressive jurists on a bunch of different issues, a whole slew of things. Um, but 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 that Democrats are, have not been really. Um, you know, content to just do that, which even even that would be, you know, sort of a, a, a break, you know, the, the continuing breakdown of, of, you know, being able to get some kind of consensus on judicial nominees. Um, but 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 it's it's all of these different side issues. And and one one uh, important side issue that I, I wanted to raise just now, just because it's something that has been bouncing around my brain. Um, one of the big narratives in Resistanceville uh, over the past couple of days has been, you know, the issue that Kavanaugh was uh, appointed by President Trump because he has this broad view of executive power. Um, he, you know, he, he doesn't think a president should be allowed to be, uh, you know, uh, subpoenaed, uh, tried for a no, crime I, while in office. I, I, I don't think this is a side issue. I think this is uh, this is one of the more fundamental issues. And I'll be honest with you, I I have some concerns along those lines as well, which is why I found the, I think the discussion that you're about to discuss, I found that so interesting. Yes, yes. And it's I mean, it, it is it is an interesting thing for sure. Like um, wh- the one thing that a couple of senators, Senator Coons brought up yesterday was um, he, he grilled Kavanaugh for a while about uh, comments that Kavanaugh made a couple of years ago where he said that if, if there were one Supreme Court case he could just like unilaterally throw out, it would be Morrison v. Olson, which was the the case that uh, upheld um, there, there was a constitutional challenge to the the Independent Counsel Act, which I, I'm, I'm getting a little out of my depth right now, but I believe was passed in the 90s um, and essentially just uh, established a specific mechanism for uh, how 
uh, investigations of ex- executive branch figures like the president could be could be started. And and the the Ken Starr investigation into into uh, mm-hmm. Bill Clinton um, that was an independent counsel investigation. Um, that. Uh, the, the the problem with 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 pointing to that and saying you know Kavanaugh doesn't want to have that around clearly he's a threat to Robert Mueller is that Robert Mueller is not an independent counsel the independent counsel uh, act expired in I believe 1999 uh, Robert Mueller is a special counsel it's which is a completely different set of things and the, and the, the crucial dis- distinction between an independent counsel and a special counsel is that a special counsel is exists under executive branch supervision they they're they're accountable right. to uh the the attorney gen- general so it's in not this a, case it's that, not a separate so it's not a separation of powers issue this right, is which, the objection to it is is that that it was something outside of the constitutional structure and what we have now is within that constitutional structure because it is within the executive branch so it doesn't raise separation of powers questions Exactly, and that's the whole reason the the uh, independent counsel statute was allowed to expire in 1999. I, mean, I read a, a a lawfare post from a Harvard law professor, Adrian Vermeule, last night. Um, he wrote this last summer, and he was basically just saying it's really interesting that the the independent counsel statute has become like s- suddenly sort of like a resistance touchstone given that when it was allowed to expire in 1999 there was pretty much a bipartisan consensus that this law was a bad law that it that it actually was you know sort of extra constitutional in that way because uh, it was completely unaccountable to the executive branch even though it was doing an executive function um mm-hmm. so the when when Morrison v Olson was decided uh, I, I believe it was an eight to one decision with with Antonin Scalia being the sole dissenter um and he he wrote this sort of very scalding uh, dissent about this, basically saying, you know, this is this is a, a horrible separation of powers problem. Um, and his dissent has has got uh, attained to uh, almost canonical, uh, legendary legal status because he ended up being it, it ended up being borne out by you know the way uh, the, the way independent councils ran following that that dissent. And then you know by by the year two thousand, pretty much everybody agreed that thing was allowed to expire. It's not what we have anymore. So it's just it's just very weird to see Democrats like pouncing on this thing, pouncing on this, you know, very uh, arcane piece of like legal lore as a way of just trying to bolster this narrative that, that Kavanaugh is, you know, a, a potential threat to the Mueller investigation. You know, it, it, and it is... Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. I mean, you know, watching the the sort of the level of I'm, I'm trying to I was trying to avoid the word hysteria, but I, I really can't. But but the level of the, the emotion and the intensity of their opposition to 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 Kavanaugh, what really strikes me is that day after day, they kind of reveal that they don't have anything because the fact that they are going with they're obsessing about the documents, which is not the sexiest issue in the world. They just can't get any traction. There's nothing that they can get their their, you know, their their heads around. Um, to to you know the galvanize in you know, order to, to rationalize why they are so intensely against him, you know. And I was was thinking this morning as I was watching some of this this theater go on, you know, the last ten days has been horrible for the Trump administration. It's been horrible for Republicans, but I'm not sure that the Democrats fully realize how what a bad look their behavior at these hearings are. You know, if if this is the if, you know if this is the vision that the view of them uh, of themselves that they want to present to the country, where they're talking about the rule of law, and then what do they do? They they basically you know uh, you know flaunt 
their their violation of the rules, their violation of all of the norms, you know, and 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 all of that overreaching on the part of the opponents to Kavanaugh. And as you point out, at the end of this process, which will come very very quickly, he's going to be confirmed, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, al- almost certainly. I mean, the, there's there's a there's a definitely a huge push just today um, to try again to knock a couple of the moderate Republicans off of that block, just based on uh, some of those leaked emails, like we were saying before, that that some of these senators have leaked. Um, you know, that there's there's people who are trying to make the case that some of these things are a, a smoking gun for for how Kavanaugh would vote on Roe v. Wade. All that's very overblown. I don't think it's going to convince Senator Susan Collins or Senator Lisa Murkowski uh, to oppose Kavanaugh when they supported Gorsuch. Um, but but just to the to the point you were making before, one thing that's that I've I found really interesting in how the different groups of Democrats have uh, on the Senate Judiciary Committee have responded to um, you know some of these like breaches of norms. You know, uh, it was uh, you have some of the older guard guys, uh, Senator Leahy, Senator um, Feinstein. Uh, some of these people who, you know, just any the, the constant interruptions, the constant like screaming protesters in the room um, who have, you know, been sort of miffed by that, along with the Republicans who have said that that sort of thing ought not be happening uh, in 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 these proceedings, um, who, who who notably were not signing on to um, the 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 violations of the committee confidentiality that we were talking about earlier. That tended to be sort of the younger, more activist um uh, the, the the senators who sort of operate on a more activist level, um, and 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 some of those like Senator uh, Kamala Harris uh, have been going on TV and and defending the the you know the the actions of like the screaming yeah. protesters. Some people, uh, I and I forget who it was yesterday who said that this is the noise of the noise of democracy, the noise of the democratic process. Which is I mean, maybe I guess in a, in a certain sense that's true. It is also I, illegal. Um, I've heard that before. Yeah. Right. Right. So it's just, it was just a weird. <laughs> contrast even on the democratic side and in terms of how to handle these sort of moments so steve are you still with us i am yeah okay i just wanted to uh, to double back on 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 you so is there anything anything other than this that we should keep our eye on i i'm, I'm consistent i'm struck over and over again about how difficult it is for us to think about more than one or two things at a time as we're watching all of this. And yeah. and today it's just, it's all op-ed, it's all Kavanaugh, which is just the way it's going to be. There's no point in bucking against it. Is there anything else that you're keeping an eye on over the next uh, week before you before you head back to Spain. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 yes. I mean, I'm always keeping an eye on, on some of these areas that I think are, are uh, boiling and and we're not paying them much attention. I mean, you look at um, news out of the Justice Department today that the Justice Department has gone after these hackers uh, from North Korea mm-hmm. who went after Sony. Um, there is so much happening uh, underneath the surface on this question of cybersecurity, um, both in terms in, in the short term and the immediate future um, with respect to the elections in November, but just more broadly, um, the, the, the extent to which our enemies are making huge strides uh, in cybersecurity and we're not, um, and we don't seem to be taking it that seriously. The Trump White House eliminated the position of uh, the cybersecurity czar not long ago, um, is the kind of thing that when you talk to intelligence officials, and these are people who don't, they don't care about, you know, the politics of this. They don't, they're not, I don't know whether they're Trump supporters or not Trump supporters, but the people whose job it is to, to protect us from these kinds of attacks, um, 
you know, their hair is turning gray and they're staying up at night because they're watching uh, our enemies make progress. I would also point to Afghanistan yeah. as another mm-hmm. uh, as another area. I don't know if uh, if we've talked about it on the podcast, but we ran a comprehensive piece from Tom Jocelyn, one of our contributing editors, mm-hmm. last week on Afghanistan and what appears to be the Trump administration's slow motion decision to to try to just get out. We just, they just want to get out. I mean, the president, when he announced that he was uh, was was sticking last year, he did it reluctantly. He said at the time that he was doing it reluctantly. And now you have, unfortunately, senior military officials and others trying to uh, pretend that they can have serious peace negotiations with the Taliban mm-hmm. when that's just not possible. And we saw the, the Obama administration make all of these mistakes over the past eight years, and now you have the Trump administration doing the same thing. And I think the, the message it sends beyond just the, the serious implications in Afghanistan and Pakistan and the region, the message that sends more broadly, I think, is a very bad one. You know, this raises the question, one of the the anecdotes, but there's several anecdotes in the Woodward book, including how somebody tried to talk to the president about uh, cybersecurity. And he said, you know, I, I don't want something about, you know, I'm, I'm sick and tired of talking about your cyber shit or something like that. He was yeah. just not interested. He wanted to watch the masters. But also uh, the tensions between the president and General Mattis. How damaging would it be? And I, I know the answer, I think. How damaging would it be if the tensions between Donald Trump and General Mattis get to the point where he he goes, that, that we lose the sort of the ultimate, the ultimate uber adult in the room? And are you concerned that that's going to happen after the midterms? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, you're you're always concerned, and and you know, I know I, I haven't agreed with with all of General Mattis's policy decisions um, on Iran and, and some of these others. He's been in a different place than I have. And, and you know, it's it's people who are working under his command who are pursuing these, I think, fruitless negotiations with the Taliban. So I think it's a bad idea. But he is an adult. He's a serious guy. And I do think he's he's done some good in, in helping to restrain the president's sometimes uh, worst impulses. Uh, yeah, I would be, I'd be nervous about it. I mean, the politics of, of that, if Mattis were to go... You know, the timing of his departure would matter because if Republicans were to lose the the Senate, um, Democrats would have obviously a very strong say in who would be uh, who would be his replacement. Um, it it gets fraught pretty quickly as you start to think about this, particularly that when we know, as we do, and I think this is more true today than it was at the beginning of the administration, that Donald Trump, when he starts about uh, replacing cabinet officials who have left. You know, he's always prized loyalty. I think now he will prize loyalty more than any other qualification. That will be the qualification for Donald Trump. And of course, there are other and more more important qualifications for the, the country. Yeah, you, could, you can imagine w- what it's like right now in the White House with the president not sure who he can trust with the exception of his kids and Maybe. Who knows there? Hey, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me, Andrew Egger and uh, Stephen Hayes. And thank you for listening to the Daily Standard Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes, and we will do this all over again tomorrow.